Moms and dads, how confident are you in the word of God and your parenting? Do you shy away from the rod of discipline and correction because of cultural pressure? Or do you enforce biblical discipline? Do you, do you trust the scriptures in what the scriptures teach about gender, identity, sexuality, and sin? Or do you capitulate to whatever whim our society prefers at the moment? Do you have confidence in the word of God or are you more confident in the latest trend or fad? Well, hey, welcome to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Pilgrim Benham, and you're listening today to a special message that was preached on Mother's Day. The message is titled, Jesus and Mary. And I hope that you're encouraged by today's message. God bless you. Uh, So happy Mother's Day to our moms. And as you're turning to John chapter 19, I'm gonna turn there myself. You've heard the phrase, behind every successful man is what? A successful woman. Behind every successful man is a successful woman. Yeah. Well, there's a few people that disagree with that. Uh, One person said this, behind every successful man is a woman rolling her eyes. All right. There's that. Uh, There's another one that says, um, uh, the teacher, behind every successful man, there's uh, there's a woman. What do we learn from this? The student says, we should stop wasting time in studies and find a woman. (laughs) We're wasting our time at school. Uh, One person was a little snarky, and they said, uh, behind every successful person, there's a deactivated Facebook account. Amen. Amen. I don't disagree with that one. Behind every successful man, there's a successful woman, but, and you're usually speaking about, right, our wife. But what if, as uh, Tim Challies suggests, what if before every successful man, there's a successful woman? In other words, not just our wives, but before us, our moms, they're the ones that may have established us in Jesus. And moms, I don't think, get enough credit, but they certainly should. And I just want to give honor to my mom this morning, who's not here with us, but maybe watching live. Uh, my mom, Tammy, wanted to uh, ensure that we as kids would always give her the proper credit where credit was due. And so at age 10, my sister was seven, my brother was four, she had to sign a contract that said, anytime I win any award or any significant recognition or do anything even mildly awesome, I have to give mom the credit. I have to 100% honor mom in any speech, in any recognition. So it makes it really hard for me on Sunday after service because I love Sunday after service, greeting new people and people come up and we're hugging and praying for me. I love that. It's my favorite part of Sunday, even more than the preaching. My favorite part is after service, just hugging and and catching up with you guys and hearing. And a lot of times you guys come up and go, hey, pastor, that was a great sermon. And so that makes it really awkward because I have to go, it's my mom. (laughs) My mom is, she's the reason that it was good. And so uh, anyway, moms certainly don't get the credit that that they deserve, but uh, they really should. I think uh, one of the memes, I don't know if we have a picture of it, but one of the memes talks about how uh, our, uh, I used to have functioning brain cells, but I traded them in for children, right? Uh, We applaud you, mom. We love you, mom. We know some of you have longed to be moms and through maybe physical setbacks, you were unable Uh, but you have the desire to be a mom. And and, and we just wanna say that being a mother is something very special. Uh, But this morning, some of us may have a problem or a maybe a a problematic or difficult relationship with our mom, and I wanna acknowledge that this morning. Some of you have been unable to be mothers, and some of us, well, mom's gone. She's died, or maybe the relationship is strained. And so uh, I wanna just acknowledge that this morning, that we don't all have perfect families, and 
And certainly my relationship with my mom hasn't been perfect, um, but I think we can acknowledge that moms are special. They have a special place. And maybe you grew up and didn't know your mom. But today, I want to look in John chapter 19 uh, and look at the relationship that Jesus, the Son of God, had, the relationship he had with his earthly mother. What would it have been like to be the mother of Jesus, uh, who is the Son of God? Talk about not feeling worthy. Some of you moms know what I'm talking about. You have that mom guilt, and you don't feel worthy. You've made some mistakes. Imagine your son is perfect, literally. He's literally perfect. Everyone goes, oh, you've got the perfect son. You're kind of like, actually, yeah, I really do. But it's not because of you. It's because he doesn't have a sin nature, okay? Now, just imagine what Mary would have felt. I get awkward when I'm around really godly pastors that I look up to. I, I get kind of awkward. Imagine that's your son and he's perfect, right? Imagine being that woman. And yet God chose Mary to be the one who would bring Jesus into the world and teach and encourage him as a young boy into adulthood. And so today we're going to look at the relationship that Jesus had with Mary, his mother. And whether or not you're a mom today, we all have a mom. Uh, we all have someone in our life that we consider family or a mother figure. And even if you disagree with that statement, by the end of our time together, I think today you'll be benefited. You'll be convinced there's something for all of us to learn and grow in. There is so much more today than just for moms or ladies. There's something for all of us here this morning. So I'd like us to begin in John chapter 19. Uh, we're going to start around verse 23, and we're going to read about the crucifixion of Jesus and something incredibly important uh, that happens at the cross uh, that many people overlook or they just skip past it. Uh, but it has to do with the writer of the Gospel of John. It has to do with him and Jesus, uh, Jesus' mother, Mary. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read this section uh, starting in verse 23, we're going to do a short exposition of the text, and then we're going to look at Jesus and Mary's relationship through the gospel, uh, through the gospel accounts, and make some important application points. All right, so that's where we're going. John 19, verse 23. Look at it with me. Verse 23 <clears throat> seems like a little random place to start, but it'll make sense. It says, "Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part." and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then quoting Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. He's focusing on the soldiers now in verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, four women, four soldiers. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the, to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. They filled a sponge with the sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, to Telestai, or it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Lord, we're so thankful 
for this incredible opportunity we have to open your word and look at Jesus from the cross, speaking to Mary, speaking to John, the concern he had for his mother. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to every one of our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you, Father, are the one that draws men and women to yourself, that you speak through the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, by the agency of your Holy Spirit, our teacher. And we thank you that Jesus is the the content, the message that we preach, the message of the gospel, the cross. As we just sang about, Lord, lead us to that cross and allow us this morning to be transformed as our minds are renewed. I pray for marriages here this morning. I pray for uh, relationships for all of us, Lord, as our walk with you in this 2018 year grows in depth and devotion. May we this morning, Lord, draw closer to you. We can't draw ourselves closer to you. We can draw near to God, but you draw near to us and you initiate and we respond. So Father, would you draw us today? Would you help us to understand your word and would you communicate in a way only you can? We love you, Lord. We thank you for the work you're doing here and we lift up our friends up in Philadelphia at Antioch Christian Fellowship. I thank you for my friendship with Pastor Aaron and I do pray your blessing on their service today. Uh, Strengthen them and establish them and use them in that uh, very difficult urban setting in Philadelphia. Bless them, we pray. And bless us this morning in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen, amen. So this section of scripture, John chapter 19, is of course the narrative that that describes Jesus on the cross. And uh, to put it into context, just less than 24 hours ago, uh, Jesus has been betrayed. He's been betrayed by one of his closest devoted followers, Uh, He was sold, as you know, for uh, just a few pieces of of silver. Uh, And that same betrayer ends up taking his own life. And the remaining 11 followers, basically, you know the story, they they abandon him, they leave him, they run off like a bully on a playground. They are intimidated and they leave Jesus standing there in the the clutches of the, the Jerusalem temple guard who then leads Jesus into an evening trial, a mockery of justice where he's spit upon, he's mocked, he's slapped in the face, he's uh, basically condemned to death by the religious leaders who brought these these, uh, characters, these phony false witnesses to testify against Jesus. And so he's completely abandoned, though John was watching and observing, and Peter's kind of there, still denying him, but they're in the in the uh, vicinity, and now Jesus, at this point, during the day, has already sat in front of Herod. He sat in front of, or stood in front of Pontius Pilate. He stood in front of an angry mob who actually desired Barabbas, uh, a, a, a desperately wicked and deceiving insurrectionist who was absolutely guilty, and they said, we want Barabbas to go free. And so Jesus took Barabbas's place. I always like to say, I'm Barabbas. He took my place. I was condemned to death. He took my place and set me free, I'm Barabbas, but there he was set free and Jesus in front of the crowds who instead of saying release him, say crucify him, Jesus enduring that now is condemned to death. Now he's beaten and severely scourged. We won't go into the details on that, but we have in the past, but he's been carrying his cross up to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he was now nailed to a Roman cross. And at this moment where we began to read uh, in John chapter 19, four soldiers who Uh, were employed and skilled and trained by Rome to execute uh, men and women. Uh, They have taken his remaining clothing, and now they're betting over who gets which garment. There's four soldiers here putting him to death. These four soldiers are merely doing 
their job. They're clocking in on a typical Friday morning. And, and being expert executioners, they were skilled. They weren't skilled at typing 70 words per minute. Their skill was beating and executing, putting to death those whom they were assigned. And so you'll note with me in verse 23, uh, we just read it, but look back at verse 23. It says that they uh, take Jesus's garments and it says they made four parts to each soldier apart uh, and then they took the tunic. Okay, so a lot of people were, were curious, what are those four parts? And so uh, scholars get stressed out about this. They wanted to know. And so they actually um, decided uh, that the four parts were most likely his sandals, Jesus's headgear, uh, his outer garment, and then his belt. They would have taken those four pieces. Not easy to, or not difficult to divide those up. You get the sandals, you get the headgear, you get the belt, I'll take the outer cloak. So we're good to go. Uh, but there is one more piece of clothing left. Verse 23 says Jesus's tunic was left. And the tunic uh, in other translations, it's called the undergarment. And a lot of people believe the undergarment, the tunic, was worth far more than anything that Jesus owned. It was the most valuable earthly possession that Jesus had, most likely made out of linen or wool. And as John tells us, it was woven in one piece from top to bottom. Now, uh, I draw your attention to the tunic because I want to put some verses on the screen. This is actually significant. Exodus 39.22 and Leviticus 21.10 talk about this tunic. First of all, Exodus 39, uh, the high priest is described as wearing something very similar to what Jesus wore. Uh, Leviticus 21.10 says very emphatically that the high priest of the temple could never have his clothes torn. And so this is interesting, this is insightful, that Jesus does fit the role of Old Testament priest. He's our go-between, he's our mediator, our intercessor between us and the Father, uh, the writer of Hebrews captures that in Hebrews 7, where he says there in verse 23, uh, now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, in other words, you can't be a priest forever, you're gonna die, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely, someone needs that word today, he's able to save you completely, right? Those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And so verse 24 captures that idea. The tunic was not torn, but it also fulfills a very specific prophecy that John recognized. You'll note the prophecy we read in John uh, verse uh, 19 uh, and 24 is a reference to Psalm 22:18. Now, you might want to circle that. I think down at the bottom of your Bible, you'll have that reference. Maybe there's a little Z or some type of footnote that tells you to look at the bottom, and you'll see Psalm 22. 18. Psalm 22 was written by King David, hundreds of years before Rome even knew about the idea of crucifixion. Uh, when we read Psalm 22, though, go back and do it another time, you'll be shocked, you'll be fascinated at how accurately uh, it depicts a crucifixion, and yet crucifixion wasn't even dreamed up at the point David writes this. In fact, John Corson says this on the screen. He says, crucifixion was developed by the Persians today called the Iranians, we hear about them in the news, all at around the year 1000 BC. Designed to be excruciatingly painful, I'll add the word excruciating has a root word crux, which is from the cross. The word came out of the pain of the cross. Uh, its purpose was to bring a man such agony that not only would his body convulse physiologically, but he would be tormented psychologically 
to such an extent that he would blaspheme and curse the very life he lived. But because the Persians considered the ground of their country to be holy, they mandated that a crucified victim be elevated, lest his cursing defile the ground. That is why when a man was crucified, he was raised up usually three to four feet off the ground. So here's Jesus hanging on the cross a few feet above the four men who have crucified him, dying slowly from asphyxiation. And and as Jesus is dying from the cross, uh, you know some of us, the medical condition, his lungs are compressed in the exhale position. And so Jesus must expend all of his energy just to push himself up on the cross to breathe. And doing so means that his beaten, bloody back, torn into ribbons, is scraping up against the wooden beam, applying tremendous pressure, essentially the full pressure of his weight on those nine-inch spikes driven into his feet. And yet taking that breath allows him to stay alive another breath longer. And so there's four soldiers executing Jesus, eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses of his death. Falling apart. All right. Now, that sounds like a real encouraging intro to Mother's Day uh, as we look at this passage. But I do want to turn the corner here a little bit. There are four female followers of Jesus who are also witnesses of his death. Look at verse 25. It tells us that there was uh, Jesus' mother. That's Mary. I think we'll put him on the screen for you. There's Mary's sister, so Jesus' aunt. There's Mary, the wife of Cleopas, or Clopas, and there's Mary Magdalene. A lot of Marys. Spurgeon says, oh, you know, that we would draw attention to the name Mary. It's a wonderful thing to be named Mary. And so when we read this, we can't can't help but ask a few obvious questions. There's a few obvious questions. Here's one of them. Where are Jesus' other brothers and sisters? Where are they? We know from Matthew 13, verses 55 and 56, which we'll put on the screen, Jesus had additional brothers and sisters. Now listen, let me just give us some insight. Mary was a virgin when Jesus was originally born. She was a virgin, okay? But she didn't stay a virgin. I'm sorry if you got that fake news, all right? right, She's not a perpetual virgin, all right? Joseph and Mary had other babies, all right? They had children. And so... Um, once Jesus arrives in Nazareth and begins teaching in the synagogue, everyone's like, whoa, wait a minute, we know this guy. And so in Matthew 13, they say this, is this not the carpenter's son? Like, we know his dad. Is not his mother called Mary? His brothers are James, Joseph, Simon, and then Jude. This man get all these things. Where did this man get these things? So Jesus was the firstborn, not conceived by Joseph, but Joseph and Mary, guys, they did have other children. And so Here's another obvious question. Where is Joseph? Why is Joseph not at the cross? I mean, he's there before Jesus is born. He's there at the birth. He's there when Jesus is 12 years old. So where is he now? Well, most scholars emphatically agree, and I agree with them. I'm not a scholar, but I agree with them that Jesus' father, Joseph, on earth, had died somewhere between ages 12 and age 30. And so that means Mary, his mother, was a widow, Uh, Now, widows in first century Judea were almost helpless. They were at the bottom rung of lower class. They completely relied on either being remarried or having children, specifically their sons, care for them. And so Mary, here, here she is as a widow. Her firstborn son is now dying. And so she would almost be rightless in the Jewish order of the day. And Rome had a particular tax uh, that would have been elevated in her life because they wanted widows to remarry because they were kind of a drain to society. So they, they would elevate her tax, so now she's even more 
uh, in jeopardy. So here at the cross, where are James? Where's Joseph? Where's Simon? Where's Jude? Where are her other sons, and why are they not here to witness their brother's death and help mom grieve? Where's Jesus' sisters? We know it's Passover. They're in the city of Jerusalem. They know that there's a riot, there's a crowd. Why are they not here supporting brother or mother? Well, John gives us a little bit of an aside in the seventh chapter of his gospel. John 7 on the screen says that even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus' brothers were unbelievers at the moment that Jesus is being crucified. But later we know at least James and Jude come to saving faith at the resurrection or after the resurrection, and both of them pen letters, and both of those letters are in our New Testament. But at this point, Mary is alone with her friends watching Jesus, her son, die. And so here's another obvious question. There's four of Jesus' followers. They're all female. Where are the 11 men the male apostles, right? The disciples that will one day be apostles. Where are they at? Well, I know for sure that one of them's here, but the other 10, where are they? Probably hidden somewhere in the city of Jerusalem, hiding out. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, is unashamedly here at the foot of the cross. He's standing nearby. There's four faithful women huddled together, you could say, in the midst of this angry mob. Remember, as Jesus is being crucified, people are hurling insults at him. They're wagging their heads. They're, they're yelling things like, oh, you, you could rebuild the temple after destroying it in three days. Can you save yourself? Can you come down off the cross? They're yelling this out. And here, right, I believe, right at the foot of Jesus, as he's elevated above the crowd, there are those four, and there's John nearby. And Jesus looking down, seeing the soldiers gambling for his clothing, and then he sees them grab the tunic. And they're not gonna tear it. Uh, they're going to, I don't know, cast lots for it. Now, according to legend, the reason I tell you all this about his clothes is according to legend, we don't know this for sure, but uh, it was his mother Mary, many people believe, who gave this tunic to Jesus. For many, uh, this was a gift that mothers would give their sons when they grew up and left home. And here he is looking down, seeing them about to tear the tunic, his most valuable earthly possession, and instead of tearing it, they cast lots for it, and of course the scripture is fulfilled. Brian Bill, pastor, says this, imagine with me what this scene must have looked like to Jesus. As he looked down past his, past his bloody feet, he saw common soldiers playing their part in the world's most uncommon drama. As far as they're concerned, it's just another Friday morning and he's just another criminal. They were so busy looking down at the ground thinking of material things that they never looked up to see the savior of the world. They divided up used clothes while ignoring the eternal riches that Jesus was offering him them. They heard the first two shouts from the Savior offering forgiveness and salvation, but were too locked into their loot to pay any attention to him. Is it possible that you're focused more on material things than on eternal realities? Don't gamble your life away on things that won't last. Wow. Well, Jesus works up the energy, again, incredible energy, to push himself up on the cross, to breathe in, and then to yell out two more sentences. Notice with me, verse 26. It says, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. <laughs> I love that John talks about himself in third person. I don't do that, uh, but I think it's cute. Right, just like, hey, Pastor Pilgrim wants you to get something today. Right, he really wants you to understand something. He talks about himself in third person. But Jesus here says, woman, behold 
your son. We learned that word last week from John chapter one. This is the Greek word ide, behold. It means perceive, look, with the idea of really looking at something, really paying attention to it. Don't, don't take a glance off of your, your, your device, young person. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's nice. No, you're to perceive it, you're to ide, you're to look, you're to behold it. You're to really look. Jesus is drawing Mary's attention to John the apostle. But notice what he didn't say. Uh, Jesus didn't say, mother, behold your son. It would have been devastating enough for her to be there at the cross beholding her son, dying at the hands of the Romans. He didn't say, mother, behold your son. In other words, look at me. This was the one that Mary had nursed. She had fed. She had raised. She had prayed for. She had instructed. She had protected. She had provided for. And now Jesus, from the cross, is worried about providing for her. Remember, each breath is difficult enough to take. Uh, muscling your diaphragm and uttering a word or two, every ounce of power you have, and Jesus it takes the time, the care to say, woman, behold your son. And John, behold your mother. Now, if you'll notice with me, Jesus is preoccupied just, just moments. We read the rest of the verse, just moments before death, breathing his last breath, and he's preoccupied with caring for his mom. Why was Jesus so concerned with looking after Mary as he's breathing his last breath? So what I wanna do this morning is I wanna take us on a quick journey to three different places in Jesus' childhood. Now, if we were watching this on Blu-ray or DVD or on Netflix, uh, this would be the cutaway flashback scene where we go back to the places in Mary's life uh, where she is raising Jesus, okay? So we would flash back uh, to this scene. And so what I wanna do is I wanna get a better understanding of what Mary is really enduring here at the cross, okay? What kind of emotional agony is uh, his mother experiencing, because remember, she's not just experiencing the grief of someone who loved and followed her Messiah. She is his mother, and so no one else in human history would mourn the death of Jesus the way that Mary did that Friday outside of Jerusalem. I think moms, in a lot of ways, feel the pain that their children feel. They feel the pain that their kids feel. Uh, when our kids were much younger, uh, they would get an owie. I don't know how to spell that, but they would get an owie and who do you think they asked for? Did they ask for dad? Does dad get called when there's an owie? <laughs> no. Dad has rough, calloused hands, and daddy doesn't put the Band-Aid on right, and daddy doesn't understand. No, they want mom, right? Mom brings comfort. Moms have empathy, most of them. Uh, but, but what does empathy mean, right? Empathy simply means that you feel the pain that someone else is feeling. And moms are always worried about their kids. They're always worried about them. Right, recently, our son Aiden got invited to go to Bush Gardens for a, uh, a get-together, a uh, birthday party. And, uh, and as soon as he said, he's, here's the deal, he's, and I asked his permission to share this with you, he's a little bit scared of roller coasters. Right? He's 14, so we gotta work on that. And um, so he's a little scared of roller coasters, and he's like, Mom, Dad, I'm not sure what I should do because I've been invited by some friends to go to Bush Gardens. What should I do? And so my, Dad's reaction, okay, I will talk about myself in third person. Dad's reaction was a smile and, all right, well, hopefully they'll get you on one of those coasters you're scared of and you'll finally have an opportunity to man up, right? That's what I said. <laughs> Guess what mom said? <laughs> mom didn't smile. She had a frown. She had a concerned, furrowed brow, right? And she goes, oh, honey, no, I don't want you dying this weekend. I don't want, I don't want you being thrown off that roller coaster. <laughs> Mom's concerned. No, let's stay home. You can ride the kiddie coaster, but we're not gonna ride those rides, right? One son texted his mom, 
this picture. She was worried about him going to Niagara Falls, and so he sent her that picture. Sometimes overprotective, it's usually mom who can empathize with her kids and what they're experiencing. So imagine with me, I know we're laughing, but imagine the pain that Mary is feeling here. Imagine the pain. I think when Jesus says woman here, she would have flashed back to what we call John chapter two. Can you guys turn there with me? John chapter two. He says, woman, behold your son. John chapter two. We're gonna study this passage in two weeks when uh, we get through the rest of John chapter one next week. We're doing a verse-by-verse expositional study of John. If this is your first time with us, we teach through the scriptures verse-by-verse. We're in John chapter one is where we are uh, next week. Uh, So we'll be in two in a few weeks. But look at verse one, uh, John two. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now, I'm at the wrong place, I'm sorry. Verse one, actually. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, I love this, whatever he says to you, do it. All right, so uh, first from this text, we read this is Cana in Galilee. There's a wedding. Jesus, his disciples, and Mary have been invited. Now we'll unpack this in a few weeks, but essentially Mary's stressing out that the wedding party's run out of wine. And so she comes to Jesus and presents the problem. They're out of wine. And Jesus says to her, notice with me in verse four in the red, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My time has not yet come. Now, he says woman. He doesn't say mom, mama, mother. He doesn't say Mary. He says woman. Now, to us, that sounds disrespectful. Like he's saying, hey, woman, right? But uh, it doesn't, um, that's not the best way. It should better be translated dear woman, okay, dear woman. Not mom, but dear woman. In one word, Jesus is establishing their relationship from here on out. Up until now, she's been mom. She's been mother. The one who would bear the savior of the world. But now, as Jesus begins his public ministry, he's got to reset the clock a little bit and say, no, 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 our relationship's changing. I've got to use a term of great respect and affection, but I've got to reinforce that now our relationship's changing. He says, my hour has not yet come. Uh, He's explaining that my perfect timing of revealing myself, of of coming into the world and bearing the sin of the world as Messiah, it's not yet here. In fact, all throughout the book of John, we'll see my hour, my time, my hour, it's not yet come. Until we get to John 17. But I don't want to give you a spoiler as to how the wedding ends up in the wedding party, but in a couple weeks, we'll study it. So Jesus here says, woman, at the cross, woman, behold your son. He's encouraging her, don't mourn for me merely as a son, but as your savior. Uh, The mom, Mary, must become a fully devoted follower. Listen, she's not a co-redemptrix. She's not the queen of heaven. She's not a contributor to salvation. As Micah taught us months ago from Luke chapter one, she says, my savior, he's my savior. She, Mary, is in need of redemption like all of us. And so Jesus instructs her from the cross, behold, woman, your son. And John, behold your mother. He's instructing her. Now, at the cross, maybe she's thinking back. She's thinking back at that wedding when he called her woman. Maybe she's thinking back at the times that he was instructing others. Uh, Maybe she's thinking about age 12, Luke chapter 2. Will you turn there with me as well? Luke chapter 2. 
and we're gonna start in verse 41. Luke 2 is a long chapter. Look at verse 41. You guys are doing great. Luke, Luke 2, 41. This is Jesus, the first time he taught that we're aware of. Luke 2, 41, I'll read it. It says, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Remember, that's where he is being crucified. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Everyone goes up with their family. And when they had finished the days, as they returned home back to Nazareth, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, you traveled in a large group, a large caravan, not just with your family in the car on the interstate. When are we there yet? No, you traveled a huge caravan of family. And it says that they didn't know it. Supposing him to be in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. And so when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, let's fill in the gaps here. Passover feast is like going to Disney for the first time, except you don't spend a fortune and you don't feel like you're sitting on the sun, all right? It's a little bit different. In fact, someone found out a little secret about Disney World. I don't know if you knew this, <clears throat> but Disney World is just a people trap operated by a mouse. I don't know if you knew that, but that's a truism. And so the Passover feast was an entire family event. You went to once a year. It's like a week of feasting and celebration for a young man. This would have been incredibly exciting, the most exciting week of your year. And the feast ends. It's over. Everyone's heading home. And all of a sudden, Jesus is missing. It says they went a day's journey. Guys, think about this for a minute. Mom, have you ever misplaced Sally in the mall? Have you ever, like, turned the corner at Walmart and where's... Where's little Jason, right? You're worried about your son or your daughter. Imagine being gone a day, right? He's missing for an entire day and you've traveled, right? There's a terrifying panic moment. I just picture Mary like the mom in Home Alone. That moment, she's like, Kevin, right? She's just absolutely terrified. And so look at verse 46. Uh, now, so it was after three days, so it's been a day, they come back and now they're looking, it's been three days, they find him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. So when they, his parents, saw him, they were amazed, or perplexed is a better word, and his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Anxiously, that's an understatement. They find him in the temple. What is he doing? He's, a, he's asking and answering questions, profound theological, biblical questions, and he's stumping these religious leaders. It's been three days, and the parents are completely panicked. And their question is, where, are, where were you? What have you been doing? How dare you? Uh, it seems like Mary was always trying to kind of step in and influence. Well, look what Jesus says to her in verse 49. Love this. He said to them, why do you seek me did you not know I must be about my father's business? It must be about my father's business. His earthly father's business was carpentry. It wasn't about that business. It says that they, verse 50, did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. You see, it was Jesus referring to his heavenly father, the one who overshadowed Mary with the Holy Spirit. God, the father, not Joseph is Jesus' father. And throughout Jesus' life, he referred to him as his father. And often, the people didn't understand, and we'll see that in John. They didn't understand what he meant. But look at verse 51. It says, then he went down with them. Hey, I've got to be about my father's business, but I'm going to wrap up with you men 
and I'm going to obey the law. I'm going to submit to my parents. He went to Jerusalem, was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. She cherished, she treasured these things. She stored them away. She journaled them on her heart. And Jesus, verse 52, increased in those, those ways that we should increase, those four ways, in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God, and with men. And so Jesus ends up submitting to them. He has the ability to teach even the most educated religious leaders, and yet uh, he could have stayed there and started his ministry at age 12. And yet, obeying the law of Moses, he honors his father and mother and obeys them and goes with them. I think this is awesome, that Jesus had every right to exert his authority, and yet he still obeys his parents. Even before a coming of age, Jesus is establishing what I call gospel priority. Gospel priority. He may have had a mother and an earthly father, but he must be about his heavenly father's business. May we, as sons and daughters, remember how important our gospel priorities are. Though Jesus was born of Mary, he places the appropriate priority on advancing the kingdom of heaven. Later, someone will tell Jesus, hey, your mother and brother are outside, as he's teaching. And he says, no, no, no. Those who do the will of God are my mother and my brother and my sisters. Those of us who are born by blood, by human blood, hey, we're family. But Jesus says, those who do the will of God, we're a spiritual family. And you know what the blood is? It's the blood of Jesus. That is the blood that runs within us spiritually. And so I wonder if Mary was thinking back at that moment as she's weeping, as she's mourning. Well, maybe she thought back even further uh, to when Jesus was dedicated in the temple. Look at Luke chapter two. We talked about how she treasured these things. Look at verse 35. You're still there in Luke two. Remember, Mary's watching her son die a death by crucifixion can take a very long time. And so one of the methods that the Roman soldiers would employ is they would break the legs of the soldier or the person being crucified. A broken leg means no more breath, means certain death. Cardiac arrest, what would happen is your pericardium would fill with blood. You'd no longer have the ability to inhale. And so the soldiers would break the legs of the man on the left, they'd break the leg or two of the man on the right of Jesus. But when they come to Jesus, they perceive that he's already not breathing, he's dead. They know, how, again, skilled, professional executioners, they would have known he's dead. But just to confirm it, just to make sure we've got uh, an actual death certificate stamped, rather than breaking his legs to fulfill scripture, they pierce his side, uh, thrusting a spear into the side of Jesus, probably near his heart, and it says that blood and water flowed out from his side. That would have been a clear medical sign uh, that the pericardium would have ruptured. Jesus would have, would have definitely died. But I wonder, as Mary is seeing that, as she sees the spear piercing the side of Jesus near his heart, would she have cried out loud? Uh, there's no last-minute change of heart from Pilate. Herod's not going to come in and say, never mind, he's in my jurisdiction, save him. There's no escape. Jesus was now dead. And in that moment of grief, I wonder if Mary's mind would have flashed back to the moment Jesus was held up in the temple and dedicated within the first few months of his life. Look at verse 29 of Luke chapter two. What's happening is, remember Luke received much of his information from Mary, and so in this moment, I believe uh, Luke was, was receiving this information from the eyewitness account of Mary. Uh, Simeon, this old man in the temple, takes Jesus up in his arms and, and he begins to bless God. And verse 29 says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, Jesus, which you've prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And then look at 32, it's uh, 33. Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And then Simeon blessed them, and then he, he looks at Mary, his mother, and said, Behold, Ide, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. And you can almost see him covering his mouth and leaning in to Mary's ear and says, Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, he's referring to Rome, right? Uh, at which um, her son would face capital punishment at the hands of Rome. But Simeon is also saying this child will be appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Some will trip over him. The cross is a stumbling block. Some will receive him. The message of the kingdom, the covenant that Christ brings, would cause many in the world to fall and reject him, but it would also result in the rising of resurrection life for many in Israel. So this sign's gonna be opposed. The cross will be opposed. The sign of Jonah rising on the third day will be opposed by many. So Mary marvels at what was spoken to him. But notice that he says, a sword is gonna pierce through your own soul also. And she believed that. She listened to that. She received that. You know, she received a word about Jesus back before she was pregnant. Uh, she believed that angel's words. She believed that when she was with her cousin Elizabeth in Luke 1.45, uh, she believed the word of God. Mary was a woman, a mother, who submitted her life completely to the word of God and trusted and entrusted herself to the word. She trusted God's law, God's prophetic words. She was willing to raise Jesus in the fear and admonition of the Lord. She, as a woman, as a mother, had complete confidence in the word of God, even when it, when it was difficult to believe and to live. And when she heard those words, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. At this point, she didn't know what that meant. She was completely in the, the she was completely responsible for the well-being of Jesus. Remember, he's in her full custody. Now, she's the one who fed him, cared for him, and submitted him to the law of God. But here at the cross, she's unable to protect him. She's unable to save him. But see, he was saving her. And Jesus was ensuring in the moments before he breathed his last that she would be completely cared for for the rest of her life. Turn with me back to John chapter 19, look at verse 27. John 19, 27, he says, behold your mother to John. And from that hour, John took her to his own home. Church history confirms John brought her back to his home that same hour, perhaps with Salome and Zebedee, his parents. And Mary later went, many believe, with John to Ephesus, where he cared for her 11 years and then she died. One person says this on the screen, in that culture, instructions were uh, given by a dying man were like writing them on a piece of paper. It's as if Jesus was preparing his will and executing it right on the spot. This oral testament made in front of witnesses was now binding. He knew he couldn't take care of her any longer, so he entrusts her to John. In those days, there was no social security or pension plans. She was a widow, and since Jesus is the oldest son, he was responsible to take care of his mother in her old Age. This person goes on to say Jesus is fulfilling the most basic and sacred obligation that any son ever had by living out the fifth commandment found in Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother. Even while performing redemption, Jesus was faithful to his responsibilities as a son. 
And I would add, honor your father and mother doesn't end when you're 18. Obey your father and mother, that's definitely when you're under 18. When you exceed 18, there's ways we can't obey our parents. They sometimes don't know Jesus and they say, hey, you should divorce your husband. Hey, you should do So we can't always obey our parents when we're over 18, but we can always honor them. We can honor them. And so I believe there's four important points of application for us this morning in light of this text and in light of Mother's Day. And I'd like you to jot these down if you're taking note and uh, we can walk away with some some, uh, big application. Number one, uh, as we uh, apply this section, our confidence must be in God's word, amen? Not confidence in our own abilities and our own knowledge and our own parenting and our own wisdom. All the way back to when the angel first speaks to her, Mary believes the word of God. She's willing to say, let it be unto me according to your word. She obeyed the law, participated in the feast, uh, circumcises and dedicates Jesus at a young age, and she held on to the prophecy of Simeon. Moms and dads, how confident are you in the word of God in your parenting? Do you shy away from the rod of discipline and correction because of cultural pressure? Or do you enforce biblical discipline? Do you, do you trust the scriptures in what the scriptures teach about gender, identity, sexuality, and sin? Or do you capitulate to whatever whim our society prefers at the moment? Do you have confidence in the word of God or are you more confident in the latest trend or fad? Now our confidence must be in the word of God in our parenting. Secondly, our family members must be cared for. Just think about it. Jesus conscientiously cares for his mother even as he's breathing his last breaths, demonstrating even on the cross his attention was directed to others and not on himself. If there was ever a moment when Jesus kind of deserved to focus on his own priorities, this was the moment. Yet we see he remained centered on others even to the end. Matthew Henry in his commentary says, silver and gold, he had none to leave, no estate, real or personal. His clothes, the soldiers had seized. And we hear no more of the bag since Judas, who had carried it, hanged himself. He had therefore no other way to provide for his mother than by his interest in a friend, which he does here. Let me bring this home for some of us. How many of us, don't raise your hand, how many of us consider our parents when they're older? Recent statistics indicate that loneliness that we feel as part of the social media generation has actually hit the elderly the hardest. There's a huge number of people over the age of 75 that feel like they've been completely cut off from their families. I would say that they are probably the most marginalized and alone uh, generation alive today. Uh, Why? Because we've reduced our family obligations to just the nuclear family. We don't care for grandparents or even our own parents uh, when they reach an age that care is needed. And so for many of us this morning, if I can step on all of our toes, having an in-law move in with us is something that we would undertake begrudgingly. I don't want my in-law to live with me. And it puts a strain on our marriage. Here's what Spurgeon says. Spurgeon says, those who love Christ best shall have the honor, the honor of taking care of his church and of his poor. Never say of any poor relative or friend, the widow or the fatherless, they are a great burden to me. Oh no. Say they are a great honor to me. The Lord has entrusted them to my care. John thought so, let us think so. Jesus selected the disciple he loved best to take his mother under his care. He selects those whom he loves best today and puts his poor people under their wing. Take them gladly and treat them Well, do you this morning have a family member 
who needs medical, physical, emotional, spiritual care, maybe they just need a phone call. It's our responsibility to ensure they're cared for. There needs to be more joy, guys, sought out in caring for these difficult situations. And here Jesus models for us to follow him. Now, it's insightful that Mary was not completely alone at this point. This is insightful. And for those of you who are older and alone, I think we can learn and benefit from this. I won't make this one of the application points, but Mary was surrounded by her friends at the foot of the cross. She had women around her. It's so imperative, it's so important uh, that we have support, that we have uh, believers that are around us as we get older. And you have a church family here that loves you, and we actually have a senior lunch. If you don't know about this, put your name on a hello card, and we'll get you connected to the senior lunch that we do. It's a great place to meet those folks. But we must take care of those in our family. Thirdly, if you're taking note, thirdly, our priority Our priority must be the family of God. Now, our family members are cared for, but our priority must be the family of God. Jesus says, the one who does the will of God, that's his mother. Those are his brothers and sisters. Now, as a church family, we have the blood of Jesus that binds us together. Some of you becoming a Christian, don't raise your hand, some of you becoming a Christian have lost a family member because of that. You've become estranged from your children, estranged from your brother, Uh, There's been a separation, maybe even in husband and wife. There's been a separation. And that's difficult for us to kind of chug along and kind of push through it. But you know what? There's hope. There's encouragement. Mark 10, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. What that does not mean is, oh, my husband divorced me because now I became a Christian, so God's got another husband for me. He's gonna be a Christian. He's gonna really take care of that doesn't, That's not necessarily what that means. He's talking about the body of Christ, the family of God coming around us. We must not forget, church, that our priority is a gospel priority. We must be about our Father's business. That means we don't necessarily need to do what our earthly fathers do, Right? If your dad was a doctor, he's a lawyer, doesn't mean you have to be because mom or dad did that. No, Jesus fully obeyed the law, which included honoring father and mother. He never dishonored his mother, but he consistently reset her expectations of what the priority for his life and the timing was. So we can honor our mothers, but also place our priorities on the kingdom of heaven. I believe in a practical way, that means us who are not elderly coming around the older or the widowed among us. That means that we act with radical love towards those in our community who don't have children to take care of them. Uh, John, later in Acts, we see this as well, uh, flips the paradigm by allowing the widow to remain a widow, not remarry, and provide for her in the community. In a large part, the widows were incredibly mature and incredibly skilled at teaching the younger women. And so we, in like manner, must care uh, for our church family and our priority must be uh, the family of God. So for our fourth point this morning, I actually wanna invite Micah to come up and close us in song. And our last point is a little more direct to each and every one of us. And we'll put it on the screen. Number four, the cross, the cross can bind any and all families together. See, at the cross, John and Mary were now bonded together as a new family. John isn't told by Jesus, hey, take care of my mom, bro. No, instead, Jesus says, pay attention, this is your mother. Don't take care of my mom, this is now your mother. 
He's bestowing upon John the rights of adoption and sonship. See, it's at the foot of the cross that we can truly find redemption and reconciliation for our families. John Corson says this on the screen. He says, I'm a fool if I take my kids to basketball games, go on family vacations, and read every parenting book available, but don't take them to the one place where bonding and binding take place. Satan will let you do all kinds of good things if he can keep you away from the cross of Calvary. For it is there alone, through prayer and humility, through remembering what Jesus did on our behalf, that true bonding begins. I wonder if this morning you need to come to the cross, maybe with your kids, maybe with your mom. Maybe we need to come to the cross in our prayer life. I wonder if Mary throughout her life was praying, anticipating this moment. I wonder if she was praying back at John's house, mourning, grieving, that dark Sabbath day the next day on Saturday, just grieving and weeping and inconsolable. You know that feeling, some of you. Knowing that person's gone, that, that deep loss that you feel and just weeping and wondering what could happen. But I wonder if she prayed. I wonder if she prayed, Father, he said he would do it. Rise, raise him from the dead. Raise him from the dead. And there at his tomb, seeing him risen. Some of us this morning, we need to come to the cross. And we need to submit our lives, our families, our marriages, our moms, our children to the Lord at the cross. And I wanna do something special this morning. It's Mother's Day. I wanna actually have all of our moms this morning, if you're a mother, if you would stand to your feet and stay standing, if you'd stand right now. Maybe you had a miscarriage, you weren't able to have biological children, I want you to stand. Maybe you've adopted or fostered children, you need to be standing. We wanna honor you moms, and what I'm gonna ask Micah to do is just, he's just gonna be playing quietly for a few moments, softly, and. What I wanna do is you look around the room, you see a mom. I want us to come around these moms for the next three to four minutes and just pray the Lord's strength, the Lord's blessing, the Lord's refreshment, the Lord's encouragement, that you would receive prayer this morning because we love you, we wanna honor you. We know that it's a hard job, but we wanna lift you up. We wanna hold up your arms in prayer. And I want you to be set free from any guilt that you feel this morning of maybe going back and wishing you could do a better job. Listen, this morning, Let's submit that to the cross. We just lift that up and lay that at the foot of the cross. We're never gonna be perfect. Jesus' mom wasn't perfect, but we can submit our lives to a perfect savior. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. God bless you, and remember, it's all about Jesus.